is Motley Fool Answers. It's the March Mailbag Bonus Episode Extravaganza. Da, 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 That's da, da, right. Da, da. You're getting 25% more episodes for free this month. It's so exciting. <laughs> oh, it is. Yes. And it joining is. me is... Speaking a, of exciting... Speaking of exciting, we've got Sean Gates in the, off, in the office, in the, <laughs> in the studio today. He is a planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool... And of course, I've got Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert at The Motley Fool and the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Yes. We have about oh, seven questions we're going to try to get through here today. It's going to be fun. Seven yep. or eight. Today, we're going to answer your questions about inheriting IRAs, uh, limit orders, whether you should pay down your mortgage or save for your kid's college. We also have advice for newlyweds to combine their finances. Whew. All that and more on today's bonus episode of Motley Fool Answers. Our first question comes to us from Mark, and he writes, what are the rules related to inheriting a non-spouse IRA, specifically with regard to a Roth IRA? My mom's advisor is suggesting that not only would my sister and I not have to pay taxes, we wouldn't be subject to any RMDs. What's RMDs? Required minimum distributions. Oh, right. Okay. My research seems to suggest that, yes, we would have to either take all the money out within five years or over our lives per IRS guidelines, and that we would have to pay taxes on any subsequent gains to our inheriting the Roth IRA. What's the scoop? So, the scoop is, number one, uh, they will be subject to required minimum distributions because they are not the spouse. What that means is every year you have to look up this IRS table Ooh. and divide the, the amount of your account by this factor based on your age, and that's how much you have to take out. Ah. ah. Exciting. But because it is a Roth, it actually is not taxed. Correct? Correct. Mr. Gates? Yeah. And I think fact, they, fact checker Sean. Fact checker fact Sean. Checker. That's yes. my only job. That's uh, but the, the interesting thing about this is the guy says that his mom's uh, advisor said that um, they will be subject to RMDs. Am I right about that? Uh, no, he they said wouldn't. that we wouldn't be subject right. to yes. any RMDs. And he's wrong. He is wrong. He's wrong. So he's wrong on both parts. Well, he's wrong about that. And then Mark says my research indicates that we will pay taxes. Well, that research research is wrong. Oh my gosh, there's so much wrong. All right, right. So and and this just goes to show that first of all, there's a lot to know about this stuff. So you always have to confirm it. So it's a good thing that Mark let us know. Um, and advisors can't know everything. But the truth is, there are a lot of advisors that, frankly, don't know a lot. Because you don't you don't have to go through a lot to call yourself a financial advisor. So you definitely just because you get that advice from someone, you should still double check it. Not that we're calling his mom's financial advisor bad at their job. Right. And it could it's be just it, possible that they're bad at it's their It's possible. Job. It could be the advisor told mom and mom told the kid and just got made it made incorrect in, in the process. But all right, so bottom line. Yes, yes to, to RMDs. RMDs, yes to required minimum distributions. No to paying taxes. Exactly. And yes to the schedule that he said. Either five years or your life. That's an right. important distinction. Yes. If he does if he if he doesn't do the RMDs for the first few years, then I guess he has to take it out yeah. within the five years. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And All just right. another quick tip. Uh Required minimum distributions also can be sometimes called required mandatory withdrawals. I, I hear that all the time, and people get it confused, so I just want to let listeners out there know same thing. Yep. Good point. All right. Next question comes to us from Chad. Chad writes, I have an intermediate-term treasury fund. 
I'm pretty sure I fell asleep after like the second word there. <laughs> I fell asleep during. I have an intermediate term treasury fund and total, it gets better, and total bond market index fund in my retirement accounts. IRA and 401k. Based on my age, 43, I am currently too heavily weighted in these funds. I plan to reallocate by directing new contributions to my S&P 500 index fund. Is it okay to go one or two years without contributing to your bond fund? In other words, does dollar cost averaging apply to bond funds? So, what is dollar cost averaging? Dollar cost averaging is putting in the same amount into an investment over a regular basis. So, maybe like $100 a month each and every time. What happens is then when that investment is worth more, you buy fewer shares of it. When it drops, you buy more shares of it. And mathematically, if you do that regularly, you actually lower the average cost of purchasing that investment. So, it's a pretty smart strategy. Um, one question I would have for Sean is, so 43 years old, assuming this fellow is going to retire in his mid to late 60s, should someone that age have money in bonds? That's a great question, and I think a big part of this is going to be his risk tolerance. So, you know, that's sort of a, a parroted thing that a lot of people go to. More importantly, if you look at the research, instead of relying on your investor behavior, research shows that if you can hold investments, i.e., stocks, for at least a 20-year period, which in this case he'd have almost on the head, then you almost never lose money. And so, in this case, you know, if you play that out. Holding only stocks should lead to better outcomes than if he had a portion in bonds. So he may want to look at either reducing the exposure based on his temperament or going 100% stock. It is possible to do that and, and lead to good outcomes. Right. And as we discussed in a previous episode, actually, over the long term, bonds are riskier for a couple of reasons. Number one, they have historically lower returns, so you may not be able to meet your retirement goals. Number two, they don't keep up with inflation historically over the long term as stocks do, um, and actually over like long periods, 20, 30 years, their volatility as measured by standard deviation is actually higher than stocks, which a lot of people don't know, and that comes from research from Jeremy Siegel and his great book Stocks for the Long Run. So, people do think of bonds as safer than stocks, but over the long run, actually bonds are riskier. So, his question about does dollar cost averaging work with bond funds, and it, it actually does because it works with any investment that is volatile. Now, bond funds are not as volatile as stock funds, but they do react to interest rates and the economy. And right now, bonds are just not an attractive investment in general. So, I think dollar cost averaging into bond funds is a fine idea. Whether it's at the, at, in the end, his question is: Is it okay to go one to two years without contributing to his bond fund? I think that's fine. You're you're more like dude. He's up on the bonds, it right. sounds like. A little bit, but because the best predictor of future bond returns is current interest rates, and they're so low right now. You know, it's like three, two to three percent versus in the stock market, the dividend yield is two and a half percent, and dividends grow over time, whereas interest rates on a on a fixed income bond, they do not. So so generally speaking, as long as the past looks anything or the future looks anything like the past, he's gonna be better off in stocks. But that risk tolerance is important. What really what that means is if this drops 50% and you're going to freak out because that's what happens to stocks all the time, then you shouldn't have it all in the stock market. You should have some in bonds. Okay. All right. I should also say that the dollar cost averaging works in a different way, too, specifically with bonds because interest rates move. And so, especially if you have individually held bonds that have different interest rates that apply to them because they all do as they mature, you can actually dollar cost average into higher yielding bonds over time because the assumption is. Interest rates should go up in the near right. term, possibly not, but but they should. And as those new bonds are issued, they yield a higher rate of return than your existing bonds. 
which are at a low, the, the mentioned low interest rate. Yeah. So you can also dollar cost average into higher yielding bonds. That's something to keep in mind. All right. Next question comes to us from Jordan. And Jordan, you asked a bunch of questions, but we're only going to answer the last one because it's our show. All right. Some <laughs> but of we still love you, Jordan. We thank you for you, thank you for writing us. We're only answering question number three. Some of my stocks have really plunged, and I'm worried that they were bad investments, such as Solar City and Baidu. I was thinking about placing a limit order so that I would not lose all my money. Do you suggest placing limit orders so that if a stock loses more than half the value, then it sells automatically? So let's talk a little bit about orders. If you go online in your broker's website and you click you want to buy or sell this stock, you're probably putting in what's called a market order. So it, your broker is then going to go out and execute that trade at the best price possible. So if let's say you look at the stock and it's quoted at fifty bucks, you place that order to sell it. You may not get fifty bucks. The bro the broker is going to try to do his or her best, um, but it's going to be close for most stocks, especially particularly liquid stocks. You can Within also like pennies. Right yeah. within penny, especially anything that's in like in the S and P five hundred or anything like that. You want to explain? Then there are other versions like a limit order. Sure. Yeah. And so a limit order is a, is a good tool. Um, I usually use personally. I use a limit order to buy into stocks, just because, especially with the volatility that we've experienced in the market. If you have some sort of known value for you know the price you want to pay for an investment. It just helps get that price instead of letting the market makers decide. And especially now with high frequency traders, a lot of brokerage firms will front run market orders where they'll they'll get pooled information about the market orders that are in place, and then they will trade in front of you. Now again, it's just pennies, um, but to them that's a lot of money. So I like to put in limit orders. And again, just to define limit order, a limit order is the ability to instead of saying please just go out and buy the stock at the given price currently. Buy it at a very specific price. You could even say thirty dollars and one cent, just to make sure that you get it very close to thirty dollars and one cents. And then if it moves into that range, it'll execute. Trigger right. It. And the risk, of yeah. course, is that it doesn't, and then you don't get that trade. Um, now, what he's doing is he's employing the strategy to put a price below a stock, saying he bought it for a hundred. He's like, okay, but if it drops to fifty, I want out. Um, Generally speaking, at the Motley Fool, we're not big fans of this for two reasons. First of all, you've just locked in the loss, um, and we are our long-term investors. Some of the best investments in Motley Fool history have been investments that have dropped 70, 80, 90 percent. But someone here at the Fool, usually someone like Tom and David Gardner, have Amazon, held it for 20 years, like Netflix, Amazon, right? All this, and it presumes that like if you still like the investment, if you don't like the investment, then maybe you should just sell it anyhow. But if you still like the investment, but you put in this limit order, you're going to get sold out of it. And then you have to then make the decision, okay, what's the right price to get back in? What if it then pretty much immediately rebounds, and you've locked in that loss, and then you missed out on some of the game? So for the most part, from our investment strategy of buying and holding good businesses, we generally don't use them to get us out of a stock when it drops too much. And I feel you, brother. I own Solar City myself. It's painful right now. But I'm going to hold on to it because I believe in the company. Not saying you should, but I, I'm there with you. Right. One other and, and many people at the Motley Fool are, especially with Baidu too, as well. I always like the advice here at the Motley Fool, where when you buy a stock, get a little piece of paper or keep a notebook and write down like the three reasons why you like that stock. Yeah. So that then, when the price declines, you look at your little post-it and you check to make sure that your investing thesis are those three points still true. Okay, then I'm holding on. Yeah. If they aren't true, all right, let's go ahead and sell. This sort of gets back to risk tolerance, but I, I, anytime I buy an investment, I just I just buy knowing at some point it is going to go down 50% or more. It, you hope it doesn't, but that's just part of the game. You just have to know that that is possible. It's going to happen somewhere in your portfolio. It's yeah. just a given. Yeah. yeah. 
next question comes from Baltimore. He writes, I am struggling to decide whether to sell my single family house in Baltimore. It was purchased in my name only in 2012 with my girlfriend. She is moving away, leaving me with a mortgage I can barely afford if I keep saving any money in my new 401k. I don't expect to be able to pay for any major repairs if anything goes wrong. Would you recommend trying to find a roommate and keeping the house or trying to sell? Do you know of any financial consequences of a sale I should consider? Woof, I'm sorry, man. Single in Baltimore. That is... <laughs> Ouch. Woo! I, I DC always rags on Baltimore. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. My, my, I don't know about you, Sean. My first reaction is to sell. This sounds like he's he doesn't have a cushion... Home ownership, there's always stuff that comes up that you have to spend money on. It's kind of a hassle trying to go out and get a roommate that you're happy with and to try to like build up some extra like it sounds to me just like a really big hassle. Yeah, I mean what came to mind first is sell it, but there are, you know, there are consequences to selling it. Number 1, you need to make sure that you can get into a different living situation at cost, right? Yeah. Or below. So if you can't find a rental that matches your mortgage payment, then net-net, you might be worse off. Now, you might have a pot of money if the appreciation is there, um, but you just need to make sure that you have those factors figured out. And then with the appreciation, if you have a gain in the value that you purchased it for versus its market value, there is one thing to consider in terms of a there's an exclusion on personal residencies that you sell for tax purposes. And for single people, I think it's 250000 And for married folks, it's 500000 yep. But that, that should allow you to sort of circumvent paying um, any kind of tax liability on that gain, if you right. have it. So, up to that amount of gain, you don't have to pay any taxes on it, as long as you've lived in that residence for two, two years, years yeah. or more. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, and you brought up a good point, too, like in terms of where are you going to go, but also if you're, if you're, getting a, if you're be able to deduct the mortgage interest on your home and then you sell it and rent, then you just have to expect that your taxes are going to go up a bit too. So, factor all that into it. But, boy, it sounds like a hassle. I feel like once you live without a roommate that you're not like um, having special hugs with, you really can't go back to, to having roommates that I've, you don't have special Sean, hugs you, with. Sean, you have had roommates in the recent past. Yeah, I mean, I special hug all everyone I know, so I'm not sure I understand the difference. We have difference. never special hugged, Sean. Well, we will remedy that. Very <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> no, we won't at all. I think y'all need to define your terms. <laughs> oh, I think we know the definition. Speaking about risk. Um... <laughs> okay, next question. This comes from Jason. He writes, I have about 80000 on a mortgage and no other debt. I have cash equivalents about twice that, which I could apply to the mortgage. But I have a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old who are going to college. I don't want them to exit college with a big debt, so my wife and I are looking to pay for their college in-state at least. Question is, should I pay off the mortgage at 2.875% or save it all for the impending wave of college debt? <laughs> tsunami. The tsunami of college debt. Right. So, the first question when it comes to college is always financial aid. And he would want to first look at and see how much he might be eligible for. And there are various calculators on the web that can at least provide a, a basic analysis. That said, aid is mostly in the form of loans. And it sounds like they don't want to do that for their kids. So, but if there's any chance that they are avail- if they are eligible for aid, for aid, one strategy might be to use the cash to pay off the mortgage. Because in the calculation of financial aid, stuff in a bank account can count against you. 
but home equity doesn't. Yeah, and just from a dollars and cents perspective, I mean, you know, $80,000 worth of debt at 2.875 is very cheap money, and you could invest some portion for your retirement or for their education at hopefully a higher rate of return. So, you know, I would personally I would look at holding on to that debt. It also affects your credit score if that's your longest piece of debt, you know, there's a calculation of how old your debt is and so you could be impacting your credit score if you close that account early by paying it off. And then I would I would recommend something that I often recommend for folks is incent your kids. So loop them into the conversation and say, "Okay, here's how our picture looks. We need to pay for this much hypothetically." Can you go out on your own and find scholarship money? And if you can, we'll match that with our own funds. And that starts to give you a firmer picture of how much money you might need to contribute to their education versus your own personal goals, either retirement or paying off a house. And because a lot of people, my biggest regret is not looking for scholarships and getting into a debt situation. But at the same time, debt helped me enormously because it is my longest piece of debt. So my credit score is outstanding. And it taught me about money early on when I wouldn't have learned otherwise. So scholarship or so um, debt for school helped me a great deal. I'm glad you brought up retirement because actually, what you have in your IRAs and your 401ks is also not counted as an asset asset with the financial aid calculation. So if he's he hasn't saved enough for retirement, he could use a lot of that cash and put it into his 401k and IRAs, and that way he'd be bulking up his retirement savings, but and also looking better from a financial aid perspective. Sean also mentioned about investing the money um, for a higher return. I would say if you've got if you've got a kid who's a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old, you you're going to be paying college expenses pretty quickly. Yeah. And I, so I wouldn't take too much risk. And I say that because I remember talking to someone who was a financial reporter interviewing me back in like 2002, and I said something like, "Well, you don't put money in the stock market that you need in the next few years." And then he talked about how he had his daughter's college education fund in the stock market when she was a senior in high school. Dot com bust comes. Oh no! Yeah, and it disappeared. So play it safe. At when once your kids are in high school, you should be playing it pretty safe. Wow. Oh, that's brutal. Next question comes from Tina. She writes, "I currently make less than the one hundred seventeen thousand limit for single filers for contributing to a Roth IRA. In June, I will be getting married. Hey, Yay. June bride! Congratulations! And our combined income will exceed the one hundred ninety-four thousand limit for married filers. Since this change happens midway through the year, am I allowed to contribute to my Roth IRA, or am I out of luck for contributing this year? Do you have any recommendations for combining our finances when we get married as well?" So, as far as the IRS is concerned, for a certain tax year, you are married or single depending on your status on the last day of that year. So, if she is married on December 31st, she is considered married throughout that whole year, which, based on what she tells us here, she will not be eligible to contribute to the Roth. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Tina. Right. Now, I always like to point out that there is no limit to contributing to a Roth 401k, so if that option is available at your office, you can do that. But the Roth is not available. All right. What about any recommendations for combining finances when she gets married? Uh, aside from listening to our "Divorce Proof Your Finances" episode, which was last year, roughly. Well, you you update your various legal documents, your will and estate plan, if you've actually done something like that, and your beneficiary form. So if you've signed up for a 401k at work, you had to, you had to designate someone to inherit it if you pass away. And if you weren't married, you probably did. You like your mom and your dad or something like that. Well, now it's time to update that. Um, you probably have property or accounts that are in your own name. You just decide whether you want to have now move those to joint accounts. Do you want to retitle the property into joint ownership? 
it depends. There are pros and cons on both sides. But really, it comes down to how do we want to own the property? I assume at some point, for most married couples, they do decide on a joint account. And that's helpful for so many reasons, like when you're calling the bank and you want to do something with that account, if it's not jointly owned, if it's owned by the spouse, they're not going to let you do anything. Yeah, and I think you know one other thing is I know a lot of couples, at least in sort of my demographic, that are leaving their finances separate for all intents and purposes, at least at the start of marriage, and then when they have a kid or something, that's when you finally take the dive and combine finances. It's just getting easier and easier to split expenses with apps and online, and just maintain your own purchasing power. That way, each person is independent decision making skills. One thing you brought up previously was credit scores. Yeah. And that's some, that's one reason why some married couples do not combine their finances. If one person has a really bad credit score, you keep separate finances so that if you're going to buy a house or something, the person with the really good credit score is the one who takes out the loan. Yep. Oh, and then you end up like our buddy in Baltimore who's stuck with a house. That's right. Jeez Louise. I do love how your recommendation for someone who's newly married is to listen to a divorce proof. <laughs> just, just in case you just think. Saying. Just in case. If you want your marriage to work, then you should listen to this episode, but maybe you don't. So, you know. We did get an email from someone who said they took our advice and they're getting married and they're going to have those conversations about finances. That's and it awesome. sounds like it's working out pretty well for them. Yeah. So, so don't make fun of our episode. It's helping people. <laughs> All right, last question. It comes from Sriti uh, from Twitter. And he writes, if a business declared bankruptcy, so what happens to their stock? The question arose due to the Sports Authority news. I assume Sports Authority declared bankruptcy. They did. And, and actually, Sports Authority is not a publicly traded company at this time, so it doesn't really apply to that. Although I will point out that this is one of those things that, that could potentially really drive me crazy because it used to be publicly traded and it was taken private through a leveraged buyout. These things are crazy because basically what these these firms do is they say we're going to borrow a lot of money to buy you, but we're going to make you the company responsible for the loan, and we're going to pay ourselves a big dividend in the process. Part of why Sports Authority is going out of business is because the debt that was used to take them private is so big they can't cover it. Ugh, drives me nuts. Any stock that has declined in value and it's not in a retirement account you can write that off as a loss. It first offsets any capital gains that you have, and then you can deduct up to $3,000 off of your income for that year. Anything beyond that $3,000, you just carry forward year after year after year. I I know people, subscribers, who um, have such big losses from the dot-com bust, they're still able to deduct $3,000 every year off their tax return due to those losses. You can carry them forward indefinitely. But essentially, it's just the stock is worth nothing. Right. You, You still hold that not literal piece of paper, but you still hold that share, and it's just got a big old zippy on it. Right. But the the trickier part about this is, if you sold a stock, you would get a statement from your broker at the end of the year saying, you bought it for this price, you sold it to this price, and that's what you report to the IRS. For a worth of security, you didn't sell it. It's just worth nothing at this point. Yeah. And so, A, you might have to get some proof. It might be a letter from your broker or, uh, or documentation that when the stock was delisted. And with a worth of security, it is always considered that you sold it on December 31st of that year. And that's important because that could help determine whether it's a long-term loss or a short-term loss. Oh, okay. And the rules have gotten easier since 2008. It used to be kind of difficult to declare a capital asset a worthless security because sometimes, even after Chapter 11 bankruptcy, there's still some nominal value to that security and you could only claim the delta instead of it being zero and claiming the full amount. Uh, but that should not be. I think 
getting a letter from your brokerage firm should qualify and you should be fine. Right. And that's a really good point. Just because something went bankrupt doesn't mean it's out of business. The stock could be worth pennies, absolute pennies, but it's still worth something. So if you want to take that loss, you have to sell it in the open market and then use that as the information you use on your tax return. So when does a st- so a stock is finally worth absolutely nothing when the company goes completely out of business? It's delisted. You can't like there's no way for you to sell it. It just there's nothing to sell anymore. Yeah. Like the shares aren't on an exchange anywhere. The the, the only value it has is if you had the certificates you could sell it on eBay. That's about it. Chapter 11 is not necessarily the end of right. the story. Right. Right. I mean, you think not. of like General Motors yeah. and a lot of big companies have declared bankruptcy and then they've recovered and their stock is trading. I've done it two or three times personally. No, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Someone would- of your exceptional credit score would not be someone we wouldn't have you on the show. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for today. We blew through a bunch of your questions. Um, hopefully, you guys found it helpful. I know, like I said in the past, we have hundreds of questions from you guys waiting to answer, and so I'm sorry that we can't get to them all. Um, but we love you. We certainly do. And it's not like we're ignoring you. Special hugs coming. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sean, thanks for joining us again. It's been nice to have you. I miss you guys. We We miss miss you you too. too. Jinx. Jinx. So come back and maybe you can answer some more questions in the future or come back on to talk about other fun stuff. Will do. All right. The show is edited. Affectionately. Affectionately. By Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp and Sean Gates, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish. Stay foolish.